I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi, I'm Jill Yamasaki, and it's a privilege to be joined today by Drs. Leandra Hernandez and Sarah De Los Santos Upton. Dr. Hernandez is an assistant professor of communication studies at Utah Valley University, and Dr. Sarah De Los Santos Upton is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Texas El Paso. Their research largely addresses social change in communication in border contexts, including issues regarding Latinx cultural identities, health experiences, and media representations. Today I am talking with Leah and Sarah about their ongoing research at the Mexico-U.S. border in contexts of culture, reproductive justice, and gendered violence. Together, they have authored an award-winning book entitled Challenging Reproductive Control and Gendered Violence in the Americas, as well as a number of related articles and chapters, including their profound essay in health communication. Leah and Sarah, welcome. Your work is so meaningful and important, and it's a pleasure to bring it to life today. Thank you both for taking time to talk to listeners and me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Good. Uh, Let's start. At the beginning of the essay, you position yourselves as Chicana feminists. Could you please explain to us how that perspective guides and permeates your work? Yeah, so for me at least, Leah here, um, Chicana feminisms has kind of been a guiding way for me to make sense of uh, my research, my teaching, and as hokey as this may sound, essentially my existence, right? So it it informs like how I make sense of being a Mexican-American woman. It informs how I make sense of my activism. And um, for me, it, it looks at the Mexican experience, the Mexican-American experience through the um, sort of like politicized activist lens. Yes, and and I completely agree and relate to that. Um, I especially the the idea of activism. I feel like growing up for a long time, uh, it took me a while to feel that I was allowed to claim the identity of Chicana mm-hmm. because I feel like it carries with it this. Uh, it has to be political. Um, to claim that identity and you have to, to claim it as a political act and to embody it as a political act. And so I really had to think through, um, am I doing what I need to be doing to earn this label, um, to claim it for myself? And so I think that it, it's this continual check-in process where I'm thinking about, um, as an individual, you know, human being living in the world, am I doing what I need to be doing to be considered a Chicana and a feminist? And then is that influencing my work in the ways that it should be? Hmm. I I appreciate how you um, talk about it as both an identity and an embodiment. Um, And I can see that in your work. So I think we'll get back to that in a second. Um, 
especially, you know, your embodied scholarship and the importance of that. Um, Leah and Sarah, in addition to being health communication and Latinx communication scholars, you also study borders. And today we'll be talking about your work at the Mexico-U.S. border, but briefly, what are some of the other physical and or metaphorical borders that you address in your scholarship? Yeah, I'm I'm so thankful to have met Sarah so serendipitously several years ago. Actually, the first time we ever met was at um, the OSCLG conference in San Francisco, And, you know, back then, I don't think either of us knew where our friendship would take us. But I think that borders is is one of the unifying ways that Sarah and I together make sense of so much. Um, So, for example, we have a chapter coming out soon in an edited volume with Norma Cantu and several other amazing Chicana feminist scholars where we talk about um, like the metaphysical psychological borderlands in the classroom. So like how we teach Chicana feminisms to um, Chicano, Latino, Mexican-American identified students, but also how we teach it to students who may not necessarily claim the racial ethnic identity of Hispanic or Latino. Um, And students who might be, I think, far removed from that experience, but can still use uh, Chicana feminist concepts and like Gloria Anzaldúa's works to help them make sense of their own sorts of mental, psychological borders that they experience in their own identity on a daily basis. Absolutely. And I believe that this focus on borders has allowed us to embrace fluidity in a number of different ways. And I think that that that's something that we experience in our own lives. And also it influences, um, you know, our, our ability, I I know that Leah especially has, has come up against challenges about what counts as health communication and what doesn't. And I think bringing this borderland perspective, um, as Ansel Dua says, we develop a tolerance for ambiguity. And so we recognize that in our own lives and in our scholarship, things don't have to fit into neat, tidy boxes with labels that make sense to everybody uh, because our lives are more complicated than that. Uh, And so I think that it, this thread of of borderlands and identity kind of influences um, every aspect of our research. And I think that's one thing that makes your research especially meaningful, the ways that um, the personal has and continues to inform your professional commitments. Um, I like this idea that you say about embracing fluidity. So um, throughout the essay, you provide examples of your continual um, insider-outsider status. And I'm going to read you a quote um, from your essay. You write, As Chicana Tejana feminists who were both born and raised in Texas, anxieties about our friends and family members' safety and citizenship, coupled with the betrayal of our government, manifested physically and propelled us to write this essay. Your essay is written in the context of reproductive injustice at the Mexico-U.S. border, but I'm also really struck by how this statement poignantly captures the fear, anger, and determination felt by so many, not only in this current political climate, and especially now um, during COVID-19, when so many immigrant and refugee communities are at particular economic and physical risk. Could you further unpack this statement for us? I mean, how has the personal informed your professional commitments? Uh, 
I mean, I, th- I think for, for both of us, it's, it's not easy to separate either. Right. And, you know, Sarah and I have talked about this in a lot of our work where we operate from this fundamental position of privilege, knowing that we ourselves are citizens and have the privileges that come with that. But um, for several of our friends and our family members and our loved ones and our community members, that's not the same. And I mean, even then, like even those of us who do have the citizenship still face um, turmoil, health disparities, healthcare access issues, all of these things that have been really exacerbated by the current um, pandemic. So, I mean, I think for both of us, Sarah and I blending like Latinx communication studies and health communication and border studies and, and even like the environmental slash reproductive justice aspects as well, like it, it comes together in this total moment, especially in our current um, political moment, right? To to really galvanize for health equity and health access, and I mean, not just awareness of what's going on at the border, but like very real, intentional actions to fight back against that. And I think that you know what I would add to that. I, I think that Leandra really summed it up beautifully. Um, but just to give a, a really specific example from um, here in El Paso. We live in a community that is already, we experience, you know, a number of health inequities. Um, A large number of uninsured um, people who live here, a large number of um, people whose health has been affected by environmental racism. Um, and, And so there are so many issues that are kind of intersecting in really problematic ways um, that, you know, put us at higher risk for some of these COVID-19 complications. And, you know, I think that we're all, we're doing our best, we're doing our part. But what I'm seeing happening in kind of larger conversations about the pandemic is on the one hand, we have this awful governor who decides that, um, you know, we're just going to reopen. We don't care. We don't care if it's safe. We don't care what the data says. We're just going to reopen the state. And we have a lieutenant governor saying that, you know, it's okay to sacrifice the lives of our older community members if we can save the economy. Um, but then it, at the same time, the governor um, uses El Paso as a scapegoat and says, oh, look, um, this community, based on some study that I think is very flawed, um, this community is not sheltering in place. They continue, there continues to be a lot of movement. Um, people, you know, aren't staying home. And I think that there's this failure to recognize that so many people who live in this community uh, are still being expected to show up at their jobs, whether or not they are essential. Um, they either go to work or they, you know, risk losing the job and not being able to collect unemployment. Yet our community is scapegoated and, and we're kind of held up as this example of people who don't follow the rules, people who are flawed, um, people who are culturally deficient. And that's why, you know, we're at risk for getting sick. And there's no acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, our governor is putting us in harm's way intentionally to save uh, the economy. Yeah. And I think um, you voice some 
some righteous anger that um, could possibly be um, incorporated into further scholarship. Um, because you also voice righteous anger um, in this essay when you talk about motherhood and reproductive justice. Um, and I think your essay brilliantly contextualizes some of the atrocities occurring at the Mexico-U.S. border as instances of reproductive injustice. Could you talk us through some examples from this perspective? Yeah, so so Sarah and I um, are currently working on another piece right now where we are deconstructing and looking at um, violence against Latin American migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border who are particularly transgendered. And if we think about um, migrant populations already existing in the margins in our country in this current political moment, when we think about um, the reproductive violence, the sexual gendered violence, and then also the health violence going on, um, transgender uh, migrant individuals are at even more risk for um, brutality, violence, and even murder. So um, kind of drawing off a, an article that we had come out in Frontiers last summer, um, Sarah and I together have really been spending a lot of time over the last several years thinking through what this sort of violence at the border looks like theoretically, but also what we as scholars and community members and activists can do to join forces to um, try and lend what we can to address this, whether it's um, better cultural competence programs or, or um, things of that nature. Yeah, I think you know, the, again, um, thank you, Leandra, you, you summed this up very well. Um, just to offer um, another example that I think, you know, we were kind of talking through when we wrote this essay originally, and now I think is coming up in new ways um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, El Paso has an alarmingly high um, C-section rate, and it and a lot of the kind of testimonies that I've heard from um, birthing people who have had to have emergency C-sections is this idea that, uh, which Leander and I are, are also working on a different essay that, that looks at the paternalization um, of birthing people in healthcare. So this idea that, you know, I know what's best for you. You don't know what's best. You're going to do what I tell you to do. Um, and, and this problem of reproductive violence can can manifest through you know being treated mistreated during um, your birthing experience, and it can range all the way to being assaulted during your birthing experience. And something that we're seeing, um, not specifically only in El Paso, but nationwide um, amidst the pandemic, is these restrictions that are being placed on birthing people. So not being allowed to have people in the room with you when you're birthing. Um, there was a statement put out by, I cannot remember the healthcare center, but demanding that women get mandatory epidurals uh, upon entering the hospital to give birth because they just didn't want to have to deal with, uh, they wanted the birth to be controlled in a medical sense in a way that made doctors comfortable. Um, and it didn't matter if it made, you know, birthing people comfortable or not. Uh, and so I think that, you know, it's this healthcare arena where rights are taken away very quickly and mistreatment 
um, occurs very frequently, but it's under the guise of, oh, we're protecting you. We're doing what's best for you. We know what's best. And we see that happening a lot here at the border, but I think nationwide under COVID-19, it's bringing up these underlying problems in um, how birth is done in this country. Yeah. And I, I, I think um, what you're saying also goes in nicely with this quote um, that you include in your book. And then it's also in this health communication essay. And I'd like to share it now with the listeners and then ask um, you to um, elaborate. You say, quote, reproductive justice is achieved when women of all backgrounds and walks of life have access to equitable and supportive health care throughout all phases of reproduction, ranging from the decision to reproduce or not have children through prenatal care, postnatal care, and more throughout the lifespan. What does equitable and supportive health care look like um, for all women in general, but also in particular for women of color in this context? Yeah, the, one of the, I remember when Sarah and I started working on our book project several years ago, and in our introduction, we listed a few um, news headlines, which kind of galvanized the entire project at the outset, including but not limited to, um, you know, forced mandatory ultrasounds, Texas having one of the highest maternal mortality rates. Um, you know, women being assaulted, being forced to carry their pregnancy to term. And being that Sarah and I are both born and raised in Texas, I remember the maternal mortality rate statistic sticking out to me the most, particularly because it was black and brown women who were suffering most disproportionately from maternal mortality rates. And um, thinking through that and about what reproductive justice looks like um, equitably for all women, right? Like for me personally, I always contextualize it within health disparities and healthcare access, right? So like, not only are we thinking about women having access to the pre and postnatal care that they need, but also do they have access to translators and interpreters? Um, are they able to carry through with their birth plans as they originally intended? Kind of like what Sarah was mentioning earlier with the obstetric violence, um, and ultimately, how are those women who are most marginalized, especially when we're thinking about migrants, also able to get access to the care that they need? Because currently, that's one of the most pressing issues, especially as we've seen news headlines coming out in the last few years, talking about um, women at the, at the border being murdered, being assaulted, um, not getting the care that they need, and ultimately passing away, which is, I think, for Sarah and me, one of the most grievous injustices that we could think of in this current moment. Absolutely. And we've started to, to kind of expand to think about, um, we, we've identified, you know, what some of the issues are and, and moving forward, we're trying to think about, you know, what are some examples of where of healthcare providers kind of getting it right or really mm -hmm. engaging in reproductive justice. And an example that we're kind of working with right now is um, midwives on the border and the way that, you know, we've seen them really facilitate not only, I mean, in some cases, they're literally facilitating border crossings for birthing women, um, giving them the necessary documents to, ensure that um, Customs and Border Protection agents l allow them to cross to give birth in birth centers in, um, in El Paso. 
And uh, a role that they're playing right now during this um, COVID-19 crisis is offering um, home birth as an option um, to um, to mothers who medically, uh, you know, don't have, aren't at risk, um, who can have, you know, a safe delivery in their homes. Midwives are kind of filling this incredibly important role of um, allowing families to birth safely in their homes to avoid going to um, the hospital where, you know, they could be at risk for contracting the virus. They could be um, just, it, it could be a really scary disruptive birthing experience. If you know that you're in the hospital during a pandemic, if you can't have your team, uh, your birthing team with you, uh, I know in some cases there's been questions about whether or not partners would even be allowed in the room. And so we're seeing um, once again, as midwives have kind of played this reproductive justice role on the border in um, in respect to facilitating border crossing, uh, they are now kind of filling in another gap during this pandemic and allowing kind of safe, equitable um choice-based uh, birthing options in the, the border community. And so we're, we're really excited to kind of think through the, the role that midwives play in achieving reproductive justice on the border. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, with choice comes empowerment. And I think it's great that you are um, examining those spaces as well. So as, as um, empowerment and oppression functions, I want to talk to you about motherhood for a second. Specifically, um, you describe motherhood as a, quote, system of roles that rely on community support, safety, freedom from state intervention, education, and access to equitable and culturally competent health care in prenatal, postnatal, and lifespan contexts. Sarah, you're a mother, and Leah, you are both a child-free woman and a TIA. How have these positions functioned as sites of both empowerment and oppression for you personally? Such a good question. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to take this one first? Sure. Um, well, I think, as I mentioned in the essay, um, I used to really think about kind of reproductive justice in terms of these large-scale uh, issues of oppression and enactments of violence against women. Um, my background is studying in my my master's program, I studied feminicidio in Ciudad Juarez, and that's kind of where my focus was. And once I became pregnant, I realized, um, I, I saw these really small nuanced ways that um, reproductive injustice plays at kind of every step in the process. So I share in the essay my experience of, you know, calling my um, OBGYN's office and uh, asking for a pregnancy test and being treated very rudely on the phone um, that I was questioned about, you know, why do you want to come take a test if you already took one at home and it was positive? And, and I tried explaining that, you know, I've never been pregnant. I don't know what I'm supposed to do right now. Um, and then there was, I won't get into it. It's in the essay, but there was a whole issue around, um, 
testing and hormone levels and everything was fine. But the way that it was framed to me medically um, was very scary. And then information was withheld from me. Um, And so I realized, you know, this is a very small thing in the larger scheme of things. um, But it still felt scary and rhetorically violent when I was experiencing it. And, And so it really helped me think through reproductive injustice as this wide spectrum of experiences that can be kind of small, everyday, mundane seeming um, things, but also these large scale enactments of violence. And and I think that motherhood um, has really illuminated for me a lot of those um, issues of reproductive injustice on, on the spectrum. Um, and I mean, my mind is flooding with examples right now, um, but I will I will pause um, and let's hear from Leandra about your experience as a child free woman and a thea. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to think about this, um, particularly as Sarah and I operate and come from within a like a Chicana feminist lens, right? Because um, culturally, as Mexican American women, as we all know motherhood is venerated. It is a role that comes with it, great power and great joy, but also depending on the context, um, great strife and great struggle. And when I first started discovering feminism and the pro-life, pro-choice debates and all of those things at a younger age, for me, I entered through the lens of the pro-choice sort of angle, particularly because I was never convinced that I wanted to have a family or that I wanted to be a mother. And I very much valued those healthcare opportunities and resources that helped me make the choices that I needed to, to plan for my own future. And now that I've gotten older and, you know, I am child free, I find great joy and great value in the community, familial, cultural role of being able to be there for my friends and my family members and my loved ones and their children in ways that are supportive and meaningful that don't necessarily result in me having my own children. So like with Sarah, for example, um, we always joke that I am a tia or an aunt to Sarah's two beautiful children. And one of the best parts of this community is that reproductive justice for us also looks like that support. So at every conference in the last few years, Sarah has brought her children. And with Sarah and our other um, colleagues or comadres, as we would call them, right, Diane and Amanda, we present with each other's children. We have our children in every space. And it's important for both of us and for all of us really to normalize what that motherhood and that community looks like, not just in personal spaces, but also in academic spaces. So, I mean, of course, for me, not having children, navigating those conversations and those cultural norms and expectations has always been very challenging. Um, But Luckily, I've found like I've been with my partner for over a decade, and this is a decision we've made together. And it's a life that we live together. But I am still able to participate in those sorts of mothering roles and connections with people I love dearly, like Sarah and several of my other friends and family members. Um, 
that doesn't result in me feeling like I have to give give in to some sort of compulsory motherhood on my end. And yeah, that I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I just really this um, topic is really meaningful for me. And and I just wanted to add one more thing um, to this idea of Leandra as a Thea. Um, she not only has helped with that actual physical labor of holding babies at conference presentations, um, but she, an example that, that just stands out to me right now is, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this pandemic. I am at home um, with my two very young children and no childcare. And um, I think that academia um, in some ways has, you know, according to some emails we've gotten from, you know, different places, there's this idea that, oh, well, we'll all continue on as normal. Um, you know, you're at home, but you can still work from home. Everything's fine. Just do your jobs at home instead of in your offices. And this, so my motherhood feels very like invisible to other people, but highly visible to me because it it's very all consuming, especially right now. And Leandra consistently um, in our working relationship together and our friendship is gives me so much space to um, through our collaborations. Um, it's never this, you know, hurry up. Why are you taking so long to get things done? You're not being productive enough. There's always this space for me to be a full person, um, to be a mother and to be a researcher, um, to be, you know, all of these roles that sometimes feel like they're in conflict with one another. And I think that that's something about her role as a Thea that doesn't get discussed often enough is, is yes, it's, it's helping, you know, hold a baby, change a diaper, feed a baby, but it's also this emotional support that can often feel very lacking in academic spaces. um, But that I found in this kind of mother Thea relationship that, um, we've evolved into with once my children came into the picture. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that I got a chance to, to say that out loud and to thank you again, Leandra, for all of the support that you continue to give uh, to me and to my family. Yeah. You, you're really describing um, a beautiful um, concept of, of being a Tia and, it resonates with me. As, um, it makes me think of Laura Ellingson's and Patty Satiran's work on anting um, mm-hmm. it, from communication. So, um, listeners, um, something you might want to consider also. Um, okay. You've incorporated some really powerful photographs in your essay. And listeners, you can view these photos on the Defining, Defining Moments Facebook page and, of course, in their health communication essay. We see protesters at the Mexico-U.S. border with signs that say, return the kidnapped children, and I can't believe we have to protest putting kids in camps. Could you please share with us some of your embodied experiences as activists, both in Houston and El Paso? Yeah. Sarah, do you want to start since you took um, those amazing photos we included? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, Well, this... As I, I've already mentioned, um, I live in 
El Paso, Texas on the Mexico-U.S. border between um, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And we are unfortunately, um, or were the site of um, the Tornillo um, concentration camp, let's just call it um, what it was, where children were being um, trapped during um, the Trump administration's, you know, attack on, on immigrant families. And so this, you know, this was happening in my community. Um, it, it's not something that I was seeing on the news that, you know, I was upset about, but it was far away. I mean, it, it's here in my community and there during the summer, um, of 2018, when, we were in the in the middle of working on this article. Uh, there were several protests at different sites throughout El Paso and several marches. And I remember feeling, um, I write about in this essay, an experience of going with my son who was about 10 months old at the time to one of these protests. And it was really hot outside. And I felt a little bit nervous like I was maybe putting him in danger by having him out in the heat, but I also felt like, like that I need to be doing my part and and standing up for, you know, these other families and these children. And um, because, I mean, I would already have cared, but like I'm a mother now and I recognize that my, my son, you know, was he didn't do anything special to earn citizenship. He just happened to be born on this side of the border and other people weren't. And that's the thing that, that is dividing us. And that's why these children are being literally put in cages and he isn't. And, and so, yes, it's hot and I'll do everything that I need to do to keep him safe, but we have to be here. Um, we have to go to these protests and it felt you know, there were many overwhelming um, emotions taking part in these protests, but it also felt really good to be in community with other um, other activists, especially I, I got to meet a lot of other um, mothers who were bringing their young children to these protests. And when I got to read um, Dr. Stacy Soward's work about Dolores Huerta, especially this chapter about her motherhood and the role that her mother had played in activism and the way that she would bring her children with her to different protest actions. It, it really solidified for me this idea that, um, that my motherhood facilitates my activism and it drives me to meet other families who, you know, hold the same values. And we, we would attend these protests together and we would, take care of our children and made, make sure that they were safe and had what they needed, but also teach them that part of being in a community is to um, engage in this activism and, and stand up for our community members, stand up against injustice um, in our community and around the world. And so I think that it's, it's still something that I'm trying to figure out how to balance. Uh, but I do think that activism fuels the kind of mother that I want to be and my motherhood fuels the type of activist that I, I hope to be. 
your photographs are a form of activism. You know, um, stories help render visible otherwise absent stories, and imagery can be a very powerful um, form of storytelling. So I think that's very um, important, too. Thank you. Leah, did you want to share anything? Yeah, yeah. Sarah, that, that statement about your motherhood and your activism informing each other was so beautiful. Um, you know, it. I lived in San Diego for five years as part of the tenure that comes along with being a military spouse and a military nomad family. And it, it was a really meaningful and beautiful experience being able to go back and forth between San Diego and Houston, my hometown, um, to participate in all of these different protests and rallies um, for migrant rights, for um, just better rights all around, but then also for different reproductive justice sorts of angles. Now, when I lived in San Diego, I was fortunate enough to participate with several different organizations and rallies that advocated not only on behalf of um, reproductive rights and abortion rights, but also LGBTQ rights, which is something that is also very important to Sarah and me both for different reasons. And kind of building off of Sarah's comments in terms of how like our work informs our activism, but our activism also informs like our own personal experiences. Um, something that I've found that has been really powerful and meaningful to me in addition to joining the rallies and the ranks and the causes is to also like lend our time and our efforts to organizations that might need consultant help or outside help, but not necessarily have the means to um, get that help. So um, when I was in San Diego, I worked with several local organizations kind of as a consultant, right? So like, let's talk about reproductive justice. Let's talk about um, health equity and healthcare access, particularly for communities that didn't have the access or the linguistic capabilities, or even like really at a base level, the sort of cultural sensitivity that a lot of healthcare practices need to work with diverse marginalized populations. And now that I'm here in Salt Lake City, and I've been here for the last year and adjusting and just getting my feet wet, um, that's kind of the next round that I would like to look into, particularly as we think about um, communities here and what culturally equitable healthcare looks like in this particular context. Nice. All right, so let's come full circle. In your essay, you poignantly reflect on how your personal identities compel your professional work. And I think you've explained that nicely um, today in our conversation. Now, in turn, how has your work transformed you personally? Mm. Well, an example that, that came to mind during the course of this conversation is this idea that when I, I want to acknowledge that I'm very grateful for the privilege that I have um, to have choices around the way that uh, around my reproductive health, including um, where and how uh, to birth my children. And so something that really impacted me personally is looking at, you know, in this work around reproductive justice that I've been fortunate enough to be doing with Leander for the last few years, you know, we've been thinking about how, 
how are women treated in birthing contests, contexts, and how can reproductive health care be, um, unfortunately, in some instances, a, a form of violence. And so when I, you know, made the choice that I was um, ready to have children and I was pregnant, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to decide, you know, where and with who I wanted to birth. And I think that if, if we hadn't been doing this work together and I hadn't been thinking about these issues in such a deep way in terms of research, I might've just picked, um, I, I might not have thought about this choice in the same way, but because of this work that we've been doing and the foundation that we've been laying, it, it made me think about um, not only who do I want to give, uh, where do I want to give birth and who would I like my care provider to be? But it, it made me think more deeply about what are the politics of where I'm going to choose to birth. And so the birth center that I uh, was fortunate enough to work with for my second pregnancy is um, full of these midwives that have, that they're not only midwives, they're political activists. They care deeply about our border community, about migrant justice, about reproductive justice broadly. And I really see them kind of fulfilling, they're, they're a safe space to go for a, a reproductive health checkup. They make sure that when you enter that building, you know that um, it's a safe space for all, all genders, um, there is signage throughout this clinic that lets you know, and I know that that may sound like a small thing, but it, it is remarkable to be in a space that lets you know through every step of the process that it is a fully inclusive space. And, and when you're in a space that isn't fully inclusive, you feel the difference and you know that it's different. And so I'm sorry for rambling, but it just doing the work that we do made me think about, you know, the choice. It matters where you choose um, to put your time and your resources. And if I'm going to be choosing people that I'm going to work with for almost a year um, to go through this process of pregnancy and and labor and postpartum, who do I want to be spending that time with? What causes do I really care about? And are these Healthcare providers also invested in those causes. Um, where do I want really my financial resources that I'm spending on this process? Who do I want to be funding with that money? And so it really made me think deeply about how the act of giving birth was a political act. And I needed to think about it in that way to make the best choice for myself and for my family and for my community. Oh yeah, Sarah, that was that was perfect. I mean, I I yes. think what, one of the things that you you brought to light so well was this notion of like agency and voice and action. And it it was very similar for me too, just even going through this process, articulating these ideas, having this experiences. I mean, at a very base level, it's given me like my own sense of confidence and the words I need to use to advocate on behalf of myself and others 
to experience motherhood and community, whatever that looks like, right? So to um, have these hard conversations with individuals to help them see where we're coming from, to support my own friends and my family members in their journey as they decide whether they want to be parents and what that might look like in their own lived experience. Um, But then also to kind of be more outspoken and more intentional with um, problematic institutional and organizational policies and practices, right? Whether that looks like um, better maternal paternal care or whether that looks like better benefits for birthing individuals. I mean, it. I think really at the end of the day, it's given us both so much more confidence to advocate on behalf of ourselves and those we care about. Sarah and Leah, um, as a woman, as a scholar, as a Texan, I cannot thank you enough um, for your voices and for your embodied work. Um, I, Leah, I have followed your work with pride for over the last decade. And it's I am been wonderful. <laughs> I know. And I'm so glad that you and Sarah found each other both personally and professionally. <laughs> and I am sure I'm not alone when I say that I am very eager to read more and learn more from both of you in the future. So thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you for joining Drs. Leandra Hernandez and Sarah De Los Santos Upton and me for this episode of Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is hosted by Lynn Harder and produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR podcast directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast WOUB. On our Facebook page, we provide links to some of Leah's and Sarah's written work, including their recent book entitled Challenging Reproductive Control and Gendered Violence in the Americas. For your convenience, we have placed a link for ordering the book on our Facebook page. We would appreciate if you would take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. In the words of Lynn Harder, our host, go in peace, love one another.